We're going to discuss tonight a very, very important topic, and that is part nine in our series on defending your faith, defending your faith against Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, for the last eight messages, we've been endeavoring to present the great truths of Christianity, as you know. Uh, For you you who have not been here, we want you to know that we have discovered... Uh, in these messages together, uh, these exploding doctrines of the great truths of Christianity, and they've come to us in such a clear and convincing way. We've been bolstered in our faith. We have considered, for instance, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of justification, as I said, including the very clear and wonderful truth of the doctrine of sanctification, which was part eight in this series. We have done, in other words, what God has called us to do in defending our faith, to take the Word of God as our offensive weapon and proactively teach its unfathomable truths, its riches. It's been a joy for me to go through these things yet again. And I never tire of reading and studying on these great truths because they well up a well of praise in my heart because God continues to show me new things from His truth regarding these great things. You remember we said in the very first part, the very first message that we gave, that the Apostle Peter instructs us in 1 Peter 3.15 with these words. He says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And that's what we've been doing. We've been taking the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we have been defending offensively what it means to know what Christianity is all about. And we want now to turn a corner. We want to take... That other passage that I mentioned in part one of our series, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5, and we now want to take a more defensive approach. That is, when someone comes to us, not in an offensive way, when we go to them and proclaim the truth of Christianity, but when they come to us and say, this is Christianity, and we know that it isn't so. We must defend ourselves and what we believe. You remember Paul says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, For though we walk in the flesh, that is, for though we are walking as human beings, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And then he says, most importantly, for we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In essence, what Paul is saying is that in a defensive methodology, in a defensive approach in our defense of the faith, we are taking every thought that comes to us and we are bringing it in captivity to Christ. His Word, His will, reigning in all of the various philosophies and comparing them with Christian truth and then proclaiming what is and is not truth according to God's Word. This is a command of God. The exposing of error. It is our duty. It is as much our duty as living in the truth. We dare not attempt to live out the truth of our faith without defending our faith against those who would misrepresent it. You know how important that is? I mean, it's one thing for someone to say, well, listen, I know what I believe. I'm confident in that which I affirm. And that's all that I need to do. And the answer, according to Scripture, is that's not all we must do. It is our duty to to defend our faith. You say, where is the command for us to do so? Paul's words in Ephesians 5.11. He says this, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. You see, we we have the duty... The absolute privilege and responsibility 
to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness, including false teaching. In 1 John 4.1, we're commanded to test the spirits. We're commanded to distinguish between that which is true and that which is false. That which is right and that which is wrong. We are commanded by God not just to live in the truth, but to defend the truth. And the way we can most ably do it is to defend the truth against those who say they walk in the truth. Now, this is not a popular approach today, I realize. But according to Paul in these crucial texts, it is our duty to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to expose error. That's never harmful to the truth. It's a, it's a wonderful exploration as we study the truth because it automatically, by its contrast, exposes error. I've shared with you this passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, there must be heresies among you so that those who are true and that which is true may be made manifest. Isn't that an amazing verse? There must be heresies among you so that those who are true, those who are the true teachers of the Word of God, they will be the ones who will be like cream rising to the surface. And the falsehoods and the pretensions And the non-truth of our day will be clearly distinguished because the truth is right before us. And those who speak the truth, they'll become evident. They'll become manifest. Well, that's what we're going to do. And in this major turn of the corner, the first group that we're going to study tonight are the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we're going to do so with a very simple two-point outline. I'm going to give you tonight, first of all, the origins of this group. The origins of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then secondly, we're going to talk about their theology. And I'm going to do it in a way that is, I trust, going to be very provocative tonight. It's going to be as though I am one of those Jehovah's Witnesses standing at your door. And I'm going to tell you what they believe. And in telling you, I'm going to call on certain ones of you to tell me why that particular tenet of Christianity is not true. Now, I won't won't make you give all of the reasons and the rationale, but I want you to have your Bibles ready. Take your sword and place it in your hands. Because one thing I want you to do is I want you to be in a simulated position of being able to refute with your Bible in your hand those who would misrepresent the very book that they say as well is their truth and is the truth that you ought to affirm. Now, I don't know how far we're going to go. I don't know how long we're going to go. We might go to 9, 9.30 tonight. I'm not sure. But what we'll be able to do is we'll be able, I think, to challenge our own hearts as to where we are right now tonight with regard to the refuting of error in the Jehovah's Witness movement. All right? It may not be the best for the uh, taped part of our message, but that's all right. I'll probably just try to remind us via the tape of what verses are being called out, and we'll be able to have a good time together. All right, let's talk about, first of all, the origins of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the origins of this movement. The claim of Jehovah's Witnesses, which, by the way, uses as their official name the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society... The claim as to their origin is that they descend all the way back to Abel in Genesis 4. That's what they say. That's what their writings espouse. And with regard to the times of the New Testament, they claim a very interesting history. They say, number one, we start with Jesus and we go from Jesus to Paul. Secondly, we then go from Paul to a man in the first century by the name of Arius. Arius. And then they say we go from Arius to another man by the name of Waldo. And then, fourthly, from Waldo to John Wycliffe. And then, fifthly, from Wycliffe to Luther, Martin Luther. And then they say the sixth messenger from Luther was a man by the name of Charles Taz or Taz Russell. And they say that the link in historic Christianity was from Martin Luther through the line of Luther to Charles Taze Russell. 
You say, who is Charles Taze Russell? Well, he's the man who was the founder of the movement we know as the Jehovah's Witnesses. In February 16th of 1852, Charles Taze Russell was born somewhere outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And as the later writings have given us the history of this movement, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Charles Taze Russell, along with these other six men, were the seven messengers to the church of Jesus Christ. That it was God's plan and purpose to raise up seven men, seven messengers, that would be the true messengers given to the church to reveal the truth of God. Beginning with Jesus to Paul, and then Paul to Arius, Arius to Waldo, Waldo to Wycliffe, Wycliffe to Luther, and then Luther to Charles Taze Russell. They believed that those were the seven appointed messengers to the church, to bless the church and to give the church the truth. You say, is that what their writings teach? Yes. In a book, Pastor Russell's Sermons, referring to the founder, Charles Taze Russell, The author says his explanatory writings, that is of Russell, his explanatory writings of the Bible are far more extensive than the combined writings of St. Paul, St. John, Arius, Waldo, Wycliffe, and Martin Luther, the six messengers to the church who preceded him. That's a fairly lofty response on the part of this author toward the founder, Charles Taze Russell, but that's what they believe. In 1870, when Charles Russell was only 18 years old, and while still a very, very young man, without any formal theological education, he organized a Bible class outside of Pittsburgh, and he started teaching the Bible. By the time of his death, Russell had traveled more than a million miles across the country. He gave more than 30,000 sermons. And he wrote books that have totaled over 50,000 pages. He was a prolific man. And he believed wholeheartedly that he was the seventh and final messenger to the church. And he believed that he had given the church the gift of understanding the Bible as it should be understood. Now you have to say, first of all, if you know anything about historical theology that if a man were to see himself as tied to the man Arius, you immediately have some problems. Because Arius himself was condemned by the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. It wasn't really his views on the Trinity, which is a popular doctrine within the Jehovah's Witness theology, but it was his views of the doctrine of Christ that forced him to be condemned. So one of the things right off the bat that we know in the origins of the founding of the Jehovah's Witnesses is if you're going to found a movement, don't tie yourself to one who's been condemned in the history of the church as a heretic. Certainly not one who had very, very dubious and heretical views as Arius did on the doctrine of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, want to tie themselves to Arius because... As is quoted in one of their writings, Arius, quote, wielded the sword of the Spirit to prove that the Trinity was not scriptural or Christian, unquote. And of course, they're wrong in saying that. It was not that he was condemned because of his views of the Trinity. You can link those together, obviously, because of his views of the doctrine of Christ, but he was condemned for his view of who Jesus Christ really is. It was very, very clear in church history that the clearest link to the origins of the founding of the Jehovah's Witness movement was not Arius, but the Socinians of the 16th century. Now you say, who were the Socinians? Well, Louis Burkhoff in his book, The History of Christian Doctrines, states this. In the 16th century, the Socinians declared the doctrine of the three persons possessing a common essence, that means that they were part of one essence as God, that they believed that this was contrary to reason, and they attempted to refute it on the basis of the passages quoted by the Arians. But even they went beyond the Arians in denying the pre-existence of the Son, and that holding that Christ, as to His essential nature, was simply a man. 
though he possessed a peculiar fullness of the Spirit, had special knowledge of God, and since his ascension received dominion over all things. In other words, what Burkhoff is saying is that the JWs truly had their origins not back to the Arians of the first and second century and condemned in 325, but actually of the Socinians who took the Arian doctrines to new heights and thereby denying the Trinity. And that really is the origin of the movement we know as Jehovah's Witnesses. The fact of the matter is, JWs, as they are coined to be referred to, are a group started by Charles Taze Russell, where one of the linchpins of their theology was to deny the deity of Christ. In fact, to, the, to deny the Trinity itself. Charles Taze Russell died in 1916, and the man who was the legal counsel of the movement, a lawyer named Judge Rutherford, took over. He died in 1942. He moved the, the entire operation to Brooklyn, New York. And if you were to go to Brooklyn, New York today, you would see vast amounts of land occupied by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They went there in 1942 and they started buying up all kinds of property. You would see apartment complexes, uh, printing presses, buildings filled with Jehovah's Witness literature. Much of that area of Brooklyn is owned by the Jehovah's Witnesses. When Judge Rutherford died, having taken the JWs to a new level, they were taken over by a man named Nathan Knorr. And he took the movement to 1977, where he died. And now Frederick Franz had taken over until he died in 1992. And now the so-called ministry is being headed up by a man named Milton Henschel, who resides over this vast amount of holdings called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. You say, how big are the JWs today? Well, total membership in the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society at the end of 1996 was 5,413,769. 5,000,000 plus. That would rival the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention claims 12 or 13 million. We know that that's not true. A survey was done recently that declared that there were actually more Southern Baptists than people in the world. <laughs> we know that they're speaking evangelistically there when they talk about 13 million people. If they had 6 or 7 million bona fide Southern Baptists, the Jehovah's Witness would rival that movement. That tells you how big this movement really is. Of that number, of that 5 million plus number, 975,000 plus are members in the United States of America. It's probably over a million now. During 1996, United States witnesses baptized 43,663 converts, while worldwide the convert baptisms numbered 366,000 plus people. It's a huge movement. And since the door-to-door -door preaching, as you see it, I was just talking with Jeanette Walty as we were asked to introduce ourselves to folks, and I turned around and she said, you know, based on what you said this morning and what you said you were going to speak on tonight, it's fascinating and ironic because we had a Jehovah's Witness knock on our door last week, and Lee has scheduled a meeting with him this week to talk with him. They are very aggressive in their evangelistic outreach. And since their door-to-door -door witnessing is an essential part of the works necessary to be saved in their mindset, it's not surprising that the witnesses in the United States spent, notice this, $178,325,740 hours preaching, with the worldwide total in 1996 of more than 1.4 billion hours of witnessing. 1.4 billion hours of witnessing in 1996. They are very, very zealous. Bible studies, which are actually book studies for the witnesses, for potential converts to learn about their doctrines and their practices, are also very essential in the spiritual progress of their system. 
1996, American Jehovah's Witnesses reported conducting 530,200 Bible studies, while Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide accumulated more than 4.8 million Bible studies. That's a lot of study. I can remember my mother telling me at a very, very low point in her life, going to a home that was next to our home in Altadena, California, and uh, crying her eyes out one night in a terrible time of desperation and leaning herself against the front door of that home, having been asked by someone uh, to go to that home and do a little house sitting while they were gone, and she had the key, and she didn't have anywhere else to go, and so she went there. She was crying, and a put her back up against the door and was just crying out to God because of the desperation of her life. And shortly thereafter, there was a knock on the door and there were two Jehovah's Witnesses standing there. She believed that God had answered her prayers. And for the next 25 years, became a Jehovah's Witness. This is a burgeoning movement, growing movement. They believe wholeheartedly that people who are involved in their movement are virtually the only people who will be productive and those who will be on their way ultimately to heaven by their good works. In 1996, almost 13 million people attended the memorial service, which is where they celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a prime, prime movement in our vast world. And that's really just a smidgen's touch of information on the origins of the movement. What do they believe? That's our second outline point tonight. What do they believe? What's the theology of the Jehovah's Witness? Well, we want to consider that tonight. There's not a lot uh, that we can cover in the small time frame that we have as it relates to the vast amount of literature that they produce each and every day. But we can at least maybe take some categories and be able to arm ourselves with regard to what they believe and what we believe. For instance, I'll just give you a couple of categories. First of all, what is the source of authority for a Jehovah's Witness? What do they think about the Bible as the sole source of authority? What's their position on the subject? Well, I want you to listen to a quote from the Watchtower magazine, which as you know, because you see them everywhere, you go into a laundromat and they're sitting on the table, aren't they? You go into a grocery store and they're next to some other item. You go almost anywhere and everywhere and you will find that all of their literature is prominently displayed. And one of the largest magazines that they produce is called the Watchtower. And in the September 15th, 1910 edition, of the Watchtower, this is what it says on page 298 regarding Charles Taze Russell and his view of his own writings. Now, one of the things that we want you to know for a lot of these cults that we're going to study is that their sole source of authority is not the Bible only, but the Bible plus the writings normally of their founder. And this is what Charles Taze Russell says about his own writings. If the six volumes of Scripture studies are practically the Bible, topically arranged with Bible-proof texts given, we might not improperly name the volumes, his volumes, the Bible in an arranged form. That is to say, they are not mere comments on the Bible, but they are practically the Bible itself. Furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the Scripture studies, that's the name of one of his books, if they lay the Scripture studies aside, even after he has used them, after he has become familiar with them, after he has read them for ten years, if he then lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone... Though he has understood his Bible for ten years, our experience shows that within two years he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the Scripture studies with their references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have the light of the Scriptures. Now that's what he believes. 
What would you say about that? If someone were to come to you and say that you need the Bible, it's important, and you need to study the Bible. In fact, you need to study the Bible for at least ten good years. But what you also need are the sermons of Lance Quinn. And what you need to do is listen to these sermons for ten years. And if you were to go away from them after ten years, you would find out that if you put the Bible aside and only listen to Lance Quinn's sermons, you would find that you are in the light. But if you only listened and studied your Bible, you would find out that after two years you would be in the darkness. What would you say about a comment like that? Do you believe that that person really believes in his heart that the Scripture is the final source of authority? In fact, it is the only source of final authority in our lives? What would you say about that? And if a JW came to your door, knock, 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 and if you were to hear that quote, you wouldn't because they wouldn't want you to because they have for the last several decades attempted to place themselves far away from Charles Taze Russell as they possibly could. They really bristle at you calling them Russellites. But if they were to hear a quote like that and if they were to give you that quote, what would you say? Where would you go in your Bible to say the Bible is our final, ultimate, and only source of divine authority? What would you say? Good. 2 Timothy 3.16. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3.16. Very good, Walt. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for some good work when supplemented by Charles Taze Russell's studies in the Scriptures. Is that what it says? No. You are equipped for every good work. And what you might do is tell your JW who's knocking at the door, I believe that 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 prohibits any one person from claiming that their study of the Scripture, their interpretations, are on a par or even superior to Scripture, as clearly that quote that I shared with you attests. All right, what other passage of Scripture might you want to go to? Hebrews 4.11. Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, the Bible has been given to us as a judge. And we don't have a dual judge. We don't have the judge of the Bible to judge the very thoughts and intentions of our lives, the very joints and marrow, the very piercing of soul and spirit. And something else. It is the Word of God alone. What other passage? Have you thought about Second Peter chapter 1? Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21. Peter says, We have the prophetic word, that is the word now inscripturated, the Bible, made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Boy, that would be a passage that I would go to and say, Look, this is what Charles Taze Russell said about the Bible that if you only studied it without his companion volume, that within two years we would find our way into the darkness. And yet Scripture says about itself that it is a more sure word of prophecy to which I would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You see, it's going to lead me not into the darkness but away from it until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter goes on to say, verse 20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The only thing that we have which is a sure word, 
which is our buttress, our plumb line, our standard for life and godliness, is the Word of the living God, and there is no other. We don't affirm the science and health with key to the Scripture by Mary Baker, Edder, Mary Baker Eddy Patterson Grover Fry, as she was married multiple times. We don't have as the authority of our Scripture Charles Taze Russell and his search the Scripture material. We don't have L. Ron Hubbard and his Dianetics books. We have the Scripture alone. Is there any other passage that you might think of? What about the Old Testament? Revelation 22.18, very good. In fact, this is a, a warning, isn't it? For someone who takes away or attempts to add from or to the Scripture. John the Apostle says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. That's a solemn warning. We can't mess around with the Scripture. We can't play fast and loose with the Scripture. I heard someone else say Jude 3. That's another very good one. Jude 3. One book removed from Revelation. Jude says, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I thought it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Now, whenever you have the articular construction there, the faith, the article that appears before the word faith, it's not talking about personal subjective faith. It's talking about the objective faith. And that objective faith is the Word of God. So he's saying, I want you to contend earnestly for the objective faith. I want you to contend earnestly for the Bible, for the Word of God, which was once for all handed down to the saints. We have been given a once-for-all book, and it's the Bible. Well, that's good. That's very good. You have 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. You have 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. You have Hebrews 4, 12. You have Revelation 22, 18 and following. You have Jude 3. You have a number of very excellent places to go if you hear that knock on the door. All right, let's go with another doctrine of the Jehovah's Witness. And by the way, they would say, many of them, that they have changed a great deal from the days of Charles Taz Russell. You don't believe it for one minute. No cardinal doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses has substantively changed since the days of Charles Taz Russell. And if you want some information on that, all you have to do, do is go to the latest revised edition of Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, recently edited by Hank Hanegraaff, who preceded Walter Martin as the head of the Christian Research Institute in San Juan Capistrano, California. And in that 1997 recently edited work, they have a listing. They have a side-by-side -side comparison of the decades-old doctrines of the JWs and the doctrines of the JWs as of 1997. And they have changed very, very little. All right, let's talk about the Trinity. That's one that you would probably talk with them uh, almost immediately upon their knock at the door. What do they believe about the Trinity? Well, here are some of the statements in their own words. In a book called Let God Be True, they say this, The doctrine, in brief, is that there are three gods in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. All three equal in power, substance, and eternity. Quote, unquote. Now, is that what Christians believe? That there are three gods in one? Do we believe that? No, what do we believe? We believe that there are three persons, yet one God. See, that's a misrepresentation of Christianity, what Christian theology has taught through the centuries regarding the Trinity. They say further, the obvious conclusion is, therefore, that Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. Let God be true, page 101. Further, sincere persons who want to know the true God and serve Him find it a bit difficult to love and worship a complicated, freakish-looking, three-headed God. The Trinity doctrine was not conceived by Jesus or the early Christians. 
The plain truth is that this is another of Satan's attempts to keep God-fearing persons from learning the truth of Jehovah and His Son, Christ Jesus. No, there is no Trinity. And trying to reason out the Trinity teaching leads to confusion of mind. So the Trinity teaching confuses the meaning of John 1, 1-2. It does not simplify it or make it clear or easily understandable. Is Jehovah a Trinity? Three persons in one God? No. Jehovah, the Father, is the only true God. Jesus is His firstborn Son, and He is subject to God. The Father is greater than the Son. The Holy Spirit is not a person. It is God's active force. Thus, neither the 39 books of the Hebrew Scripture nor the canon of 27 inspired books of the Christian Greek Scriptures provide any clear teaching of the Trinity. Thus, the testimony of the Bible and of history makes clear that the Trinity was unknown throughout biblical times and for several centuries thereafter, unquote. Now that, my friends, is a very, very straightforward teaching denying the Trinity. That knock is at your door. The question has just been asked, do you believe in the Christian Trinity? What do you say? Jim Colbert, Acts 20.28. Acts 20.28. Paul says to the elders on the island of Miletus, the elders of Ephesus, gentlemen, be on guard for yourselves. Gentlemen's not in there, I added that. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Jim, if they knocked on that door and you shared with them Acts 20, 28, what would you tell them from that verse? What would you say to them? All right, you would tell them that the Holy Spirit is listed there in verse 28. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. That's a reference to God the Father, which He, Christ, purchased with His own blood. So that would be a reference in Acts 20, 28 of the working, the inner working of the Trinity. Where else would you go? Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I know Artie would say, you would reason thus. You would say, if Christ is the image of the invisible God, what does the Greek language of that verse really mean? What does image mean? It's the word icon, and it means the exact representation and could be further construed to mean the exact nature of the very same essence. In fact, if you were to turn over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9... It says this about Christ, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's a pretty important verse, isn't it? Colossians 2.9. Where else would you go? Isaiah 45.21. All right, where else? Someone else? Someone just write that down. John 10.30. There it says, I and the Father are one. Not one in agreement, one in essence. Where else? Yes, sir, over here. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was whom? God. Now, again, they're going to want to debate you on that because they have set up in their minds a great amount of training that would be designed to refute John 1.1. 1, 1. And in the message that we gave explaining and affirming the deity of Christ, we spoke specifically about John 1.1. 1, 1. Re-listen to that tape. Rearm yourselves from the handout. That's a very, very good passage that refutes their doctrine of the denial of the Trinity. Someone over here. John 17.21. Jesus is praying His high priestly prayer, and He says... I'm praying that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's another verse that's really speaking about the divine essence of the Son. 
the unity not just with regard to mission and purpose and plan and execution, but also essence. Phil Krauss. Acts 5, 3, and 4. This, of course, is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. They had held back some money in the time of the offering of the church, which should be a lesson to us all. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to whom? God. A reference to the Holy Spirit being God. The Holy Spirit being divine. They said, through the Jehovah's Witnesses, that the Holy Spirit is not God, but He is a what? A force. Some sort of ethereal force. The Bible, however, says that the Holy Spirit is God. Where else, Bob? Hebrews 1.8. Hebrews 1.8. This is so very clear because it speaks of the Father speaking about the Son. And what He says about the Son is this. Of the Son, He, God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's a, that's a tremendous passage affirming the deity of Christ, affirming the Godhood of Christ. Rich? John 20, 28. Another very, very important passage in this matter of refuting Jehovah's Witnesses. You remember when Thomas, doubting Thomas, was denying the reality that Christ had been raised from the dead. He just couldn't believe it. Christ comes into his midst. Jesus says, reach here with your finger. Verse 27, see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my what? My God. He's not saying my master as though he's some earthly master. My Lord and my God. Theos, the word that could only be used of deity, of God. There's another passage, we won't have time to look at it, but Romans 9.5. Romans 9.5 refers to Christ as God. Any other passages that we might be able just to speak out? Yes. Brad? Excuse me? I'm sorry, I just didn't hear it. Matthew 3.16 and 17. There are, of course, many, many passages which also speak of the Trinity by allusion because it speaks of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the same passage. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 speaks of the Great Commission, speaks of the baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Keith? Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 12, 10. Very good. Someone else in the back? Aaron? Genesis 1, 26. Could be an allusion to the Trinity. Lee? Luke 2.11. Yes, here's one. How about Matthew 1.21? For the very purpose for which Christ came, He came to save His people from their sins. Only God can save someone from their sins. In the same regard, how about Mark chapter 2, when it talks about the man being lowered down from the roof on the pallet, and Jesus says, I say to you, O man, take up your pallet and walk. And those who were doubting, the religious leaders, said, How can he say such a thing that's blasphemy? And he says... I'm telling you, I can tell this man your sins are forgiven, and I can tell this man, take up your pallet and walk, and which one would prove my divinity? Well, we know for a fact that any of us could say to any other of us, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I could just pronounce that about any of you here. Your sins are forgiven. And how are we going to verify that? But if you say, 
I say to you, man who has been unable to walk, who has been lame, take your pallet and go. And he immediately stands up. Only God can do such a thing. And so what does he say to those religious leaders? You tell me to make a choice. Here, I'm going to make a choice. I say, stand up, take your pallet, and go home. And that's exactly what that man did. That is verifiable. That is tangible. I've often longed for some of these so-called healers to take on stage with them someone who has no arms, someone who has no legs. And I want, before the watching world, for those limbs to be immediately restored. And that would give me a level of confidence that that person might very well be doing something in Jesus' name. I've not, I've not seen it yet. Yes, Bob? Revelation 1. Deity of Christ. Very good. Revelation 1. Yes, one last one, Jim. Titus 1, 3 and 4. Very good. I'll tell you what. There are many, many passages which either by allusion or by explicit reference teach the Trinity and also we've moved into the deity of Christ. The JWs deny the deity of Christ. Here's what they say about His deity. The true scriptures speak of God's Son, the Word, as a God. He is a mighty God, but not the almighty God who is Jehovah. Now that is what we call in theological circles gobbledygook. How can you say someone is a mighty God, but not the almighty God, since we all know that the Scripture says there are really no other gods, right? So you can't have other gods with a small a who are real, who are living, who are active, and then have the almighty God. There is only one God, Deuteronomy 6.4. And since there's only one God, Christ is not a God, He is the God. They also say Jesus was the Son of God, not God Himself. The very fact that He was sent proves that He was not equal with God, but was less than God His Father. Certainly the Apostle John was not so unreasonable as to say that someone, the Word, was with some other individual, God, and at the same time was that other individual, God. Now there's an answer to that. And the answer to that is the Trinity. That God the Father is a person. That God the Son is a person. That God the Holy Spirit is a person. They are not three same persons, but they are of the same essence as God. But three distinct persons. You say, well, that's hard for me to understand. I can see how they would have difficulty. Listen, we would all, if we tried to unravel this whole concept, to our heart's delight, not be able to do it. If you try to unravel all of the essence of what it means to understand the Trinity, you'd find yourself very quickly underneath your bed reciting the Greek alphabet. You couldn't do it. But if you were to say to yourself, listen, if these passages which we've talked about tonight either allude to or explicitly teach that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, I better believe it. I better believe it. Do I have to understand it in its fullness? No. Can I understand it in its fullness? No. Must I believe it as to what the Scripture itself suggests, commands, teaches? Yes. I don't understand how Christ could be 100% God and 100% man at the very same time. Does the Bible teach it? Yes. Must I believe it in order to be saved? Yes. Who lives your Christian life, you or God? What's the answer? Yes. You have to live your Christian life. Otherwise, there would be no understanding any of the commands of the New Testament. Telling you, you must exert effort. But what does Paul say in Colossians 1, 28 and 29? He says, I mightily work, but it is also God's mighty work in me. Paul said to the Corinthians, I labored more than you all. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God, yet not I, but the one who lives in me. I don't understand that. I, I know this. 
When I'm not obedient in the Christian life, I can't blame it on Him. It's not because the power source has gone away. It's because I've refused to obey as I should. I've refused to avail myself of the power source. And I also know this. When any good work comes from my hand, I can't take the credit for it. Because God alone is the one who receives all the glory for anything that's being done in this world that's any good at all. You see? We don't have to understand everything there is to understand, but we have to understand it enough to affirm it and to believe it. And if we deny it, then we're in a lot of trouble. Now, we could go on. Maybe we could just tackle one more, and then we'll be done. How about the atonement? That's fairly important, isn't it? The atonement? Here's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. That which is redeemed or brought or bought back is what was lost, namely perfect human life with its rights and early prospects. Jesus, as the glorified high priest, by presenting in heaven this redemptive price, is in position to relieve the believing ones of Adam's descendants from the inherited disability under which all are born. Jesus, no more and no less than a perfect human, notice that, Jesus, no more than a perfect human, no less than a perfect human, became a ransom that compensated exactly for what Adam lost, the right to perfect human life on earth. The perfect human life of Jesus was the corresponding ransom required by divine justice, no more, no less. A basic principle, even of human justice, is that the price paid should fit the wrong committed. So the ransom, to be truly in line with God's justice, had to be strictly and equivalent, a perfect human, the last Adam. Now, in essence, what they're saying by these comments is this, that God had to find a person, namely Christ, who would be the perfect man, the perfect representative, the last Adam. And he had to believe, did God the Father, that this man, Jesus was going to be the exact equivalent as a ransom for the sins of men and women. And so this man, Jesus, died in the place of these sinners as a perfect man. Now, does anyone have any problem with that truth? So far, so good. So far, so good. But if you were to say that Jesus was not divine... What have you done with the atonement? What have you done with the atonement of Christ? Bob? Well, you could say it that way or you could say it this way. If a perfect man dies for perfect men, uh, imperfect men, but he himself is not God, is that a real atonement? Is that a real atonement? No. Because that one whom died on the cross had to be both God and man. He had to fully satisfy the demands of God's justice as a man. But only one who is God can die ultimately for the sins of men and women. That is why Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, said, It is finished. I have accomplished this work. I lay my life down and I will raise it up again. You see, it was Christ who laid his life down voluntarily and it's Christ who raises his own life up again for our justification, according to Paul in Romans. Romans 3. How can that solidify my atonement? Because only God can raise himself up from the dead. You see, if Jesus were only a man, only a man, as perfect as Jehovah's Witnesses might assume him to be, a man, only a man, cannot raise himself up from the dead. You say, well, the problem is answered because God the Father did it. God the Father raised Christ up from the dead, and there are many passages that affirm that. Yes, that's true. The Bible does teach that God the Father raised Christ up from the dead, but the Bible also teaches simultaneously that Christ raised himself up from the dead. If I lay my life down, I am able to raise it up again. Only God can do that. Only God can be a sufficient sacrifice for sinful man. 
That is why Christ has to be simultaneously God and man. You can't read Romans chapter 3 and understand the truth of the atonement of Christ without understanding the truth that Christ had to die as man and He had to be God in human flesh also in order to die. You say, well, does that mean that God died? Yes and no. Yes, God died in this sense. Jesus, being God, did not cease in His life, but He was spiritually dead. He died spiritually. Why? Because we were dead spiritually, and His death needed to coincide to ours. He died spiritually, but He, but he did not cease to exist. That's the difference. If a person who is God ceases to exist... Are they God? No. God cannot die by His very nature, by His very self-sustaining existence. That's the only way that we could have an atonement by Christ if He is both God and man at the very same time. Being God, He raises Himself up again from the dead for our justification, Romans 3. Being the perfect man... He dies as the sinful substitute for sinners. He takes on their sin. If you want biblical justification of that, as we close tonight, just go to Romans chapter 3. and I, This is probably one that will blow the doors off any Jehovah's Witness. In Romans chapter 3, The Bible says, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want you to notice something there. In Jehovah's Witness theology, they say Christ was a perfect man, but not God. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many human beings have fallen short of the glory of God? All. Is Jesus Christ a human being in Jehovah's Witness theology? Therefore, did Jesus Christ come short of the glory of God? You see how you can trip them up? You see how you can show them? Listen, if you say that Christ is only a man then Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and therefore have fallen short of the glory of God. Brother, sister, we have a way for the Jehovah's Witness by the grace of God to come to a place of repentance and faith if but God would use the Word of God right here at this point to show them that they have a real dilemma. You can't have a perfect man who is not God who is not falling short of the glory of God, because this passage says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now you have three categories, and this only leaves two. You'd have to create Christ as being some sort of God-like man, but not God, in order for them to say, yes, but he's in a special category. Not so, according to Romans 3.23, because if you put him in some sort of special category, what might we say? Is there a loophole for someone else? Might there be someone else who could not be in this all category here, who has not fallen short of the glory of God? Maybe so, if one has it. No, Jesus Christ, if he has not sinned, as Jehovah's Witnesses say... He has therefore not fallen short of the glory of God. And if he's not fallen short of the glory of God, guess who he is? God. You see? All of their theology becomes very twisted and garbled with passages like this. And that's why when you go on 
In Romans 3.24, the very next verse, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Where then is boasting, verse 27? It is excluded. Since indeed, verse 30, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through, the fa- through faith is one. God is showing us that if everybody is in one category, that category called sinner, that category called person who has fallen because of his sin and not given God the glory, he's fallen short, then we have to affirm that there is one who has not sinned and one who is in the category of being God himself. And when he was incarnated, not reincarnated, incarnated as a baby in Bethlehem, he as he lived his sinless life and died that sinless death, became the perfect expiation, the perfect sacrifice, because he was both God and man simultaneously. And what then was that that died on the cross? The person of Christ died on the cross. His humanness died on the cross. But God continued to live If Christ would have ceased to exist in totality, the entire world at that moment would have gone out of existence. You see why you have to have Christ as God? You can't fool around with these passages. And what JWs do is they try to squirm their way through these passages and come up with a Christ who is man, yet not God. And if you do that, you cut the bloodline right out of the atonement of Christ. In fact, you could actually make a case that maybe there is someone else out there who is going to be one day approved by God and maybe he also could die for sinners. You see what happens? In fact, that is very true in Mormon theology, isn't it? We can become God-like. We can actually come to a place of sinless perfection and rule and reign in other worlds. You see what that kind of theology leads to? Tell you what, just take those folks to Romans 3.23 and reason with them about the fact that you have only two categories, God Himself and all who fall short of the glory of God. Now, which category is Christ in? He is in the category of God. And all of the rest of us are in the category of having fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we need this Christ because He's God. And yet, not just God, but man who came to die and to die for sinners like you and me. Well, you know, there's a whole host of other theologies that you could talk to them regarding, but I believe these would be the major ones. And I believe tonight in our exercise, you've been able to write down some of these passages, and if they were to knock on your door tomorrow, like Lee Walty, you would be able to go right to the heart of the issue. Someone asked me today, if I only had five or ten minutes with a Jehovah's Witness, what would, what would I say to them? And I would say, go immediately to the issue of salvation by grace through faith, plus or minus nothing, and go right to the issue of the deity of Christ. If you only had ten minutes with them, ask God to give you ten minutes worth of time with them to see them repent and believe. And did you know that even in the midst of a great deal of zealous proselytizing on the part of Jehovah's Witnesses, that true evangelicals, we can have witnessing on our own? And when they come to our door... Guess what God has brought us? A divine appointment. And we believe with the sovereignty of our great God that He would bring us equipped with the Word of God to bring that to bear on a hard heart who might very well have been well-prepared soil and a person actually thinking that they were witnessing for Jehovah could actually repent of their sins and believe in the true Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. Amen and amen. You say, has it worked before? Just, just ask my mother. 1987, she realized that she had been deceived. And she believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone for her salvation. And she'll call me every now and then and we'll be talking on the phone and she'll say, I still can't believe that I'm on my way to heaven. For over 25 years, I was deceived. And yet in my deception, I thought everyone around me were the ones who were really deceived. 
I believed I was the only one in a group of ones who were in. And I realized that if I had died at that point without Christ, I would have been the one who would have been without. Beloved, this hits close to home to many of us. Be be prepared and be equipped to share your life of Christ with others. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious time we've had tonight. We believe because of the testimony of so many, including my own dear mother, who can respond to the gospel of God's free grace, who can realize that the category of Romans 3 places every human being as having sinned against you and fallen short of your great glory. And yet you give us this Christ who while being a man had to be that one who was also God simultaneously who would have been the one who would be receiving the glory as the sinless one. Never having fallen, never having fallen short of your glory. Always doing your will. Always perfectly responding. Living his life as a righteous man and dying that death on the cross as a righteous payment for sinners like me and and like these. Father, I pray that as we talk to these who are deceived, that you would, through our witnessing exploits, allow them to see their deception by opening their blind eyes as only you can do it. Only you can do it, Father. We have no capacity. Even by using your word, we have no capacity to do such things unless you, by your Spirit, opens their hard hearts. And if you were to be gracious in doing so, you would, by the instrumentality of our witness, using your own truth, make them see that they've been deceived about this Christ that we love and serve. And that they would see that all of their witnessing and all of their works have been done in order to gain salvation and not as a result of it. How damning that is. There would be no amount of good works that we could do for a million years, a billion years, that would ever be sufficient to satisfy one sin against your holy character. Father, we thank you that through the years you have used so many, even some of us, to bring Jehovah's Witnesses to the place of repentance and faith. May you use this series, may you use these words, may you use our diligent study to bring others to Yourself. May we read and study even beyond what we've learned tonight so that when that knock comes on our door or when we go to our workstation and we know that they're there, may we be ready to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, destroying every lofty speculation raised up against what is true about You. Lord, thank you for a wonderful day. Arm us now with what we've learned to live this week for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.